The Radio Memories Network is brought to you in part by Liberated Syndication. Podcast publishing made easy. Libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. The Radio Memories Network welcomes you to the world of modern radio theater, an old medium revived for a new era through the Radio Memories Network. It's now time for Radio Drama, where we perform on the stage of your mind. The curtains are your eyelashes, your hat our fly space. Different parts of your brain are the costume, set designer, and makeup artist. And your eyes are in your ear. Audio plays have been broadcast since radio began. Join us as we continue the tradition on the Texas Radio Theater. Blue Proton Space Ranger! I'm the Whisper. It means murder, Watson. Onward to adventure! Away! Because it's not only the theater, but it's the theater of the mind. The mind! And that's what I'm writing Jump for. Jump Rod! Ready, Ready for impact in three, two, one. Tying on the rope now! It's the realm of your imagination, where anything can happen, and usually does. Hi, I'm Rich Froelich, and I'd like to welcome you to this broadcast of the Texas Radio Theater. Next up, the Texas Radio Theater Company's version of The Sign of Four, a Sherlock Holmes mystery, recorded in November and December of 2004. And now, Act One of The Sign of Four. I had shared lodgings with Sherlock Holmes for many months now, and had become used to most of his habits, save one. This afternoon, seemingly oblivious to my presence, Holmes opened his Morocco case, extracted his needle, and began to inject himself. Three times a day for many months I had witnessed this performance, and from day to day I had become more irritable at the sight, and I felt that I could hold out no longer. Which is it today? Morphine or cocaine? It is the latter. A 7% solution. Would you care to try it? No, indeed. My constitution has not got over the Afghan campaign yet. I cannot afford to throw any extra strain upon it. Perhaps you are right, Watson. I suppose that its influence is physically a bad one. I find it, however, to be so transcendentally stimulating and clarifying to the mind that its secondary action is a matter of small moment. But consider. Count the cost. Why would you, for a mere passing pleasure, risk the loss of those great powers with which you have been endowed? Give me problems. Give me the most abstruse cryptogram or the most intricate analysis, and I am in my own proper atmosphere. My mind rebels at stagnation. I can dispense it with artificial stimulants, but I abhor the dull routine of existence. I crave for mental exaltation, 
that is why I have chosen my own particular profession, or rather created it, for I am the only one in the world. The only unofficial detective? The only unofficial consulting detective. I am the last and highest court of appeal. The work itself, the pleasure of finding a field for my peculiar powers, is my highest reward. But you yourself had some experience of my methods with the Jefferson Hope case. Oh, yes, indeed. I was never so struck by anything in my life. I uh, even embodied it in a small brochure with the somewhat fantastic title of uh, A Study in Scarlet. Honestly, I cannot congratulate you upon it. Detection is, or ought to be, an exact science and should be treated in the same cold and unemotional manner. You have attempted to tinge it with romanticism. But the romance was there. I could not tamper with the facts. Some facts should be suppressed, or at least a just sense of proportion should be observed in treating them. Uh, my publisher... Is that to whom you dispatched a telegram from the Wigmore Street Post Office? No, but he... How did you know I had been there? It is simplicity itself. You have a little reddish mold adhering to your instep. Just opposite the Wigmore Street office, they have taken up the pavement and thrown up some earth. The earth is of this peculiar reddish tint, which is found, as far as I know, nowhere else in the neighborhood. And the telegram? Of course. I knew you had not written a letter since I sat opposite you all morning. I see stamps in your desk. What could you go into the post office for then but to send a wire? Hmm. Well, in this case, it certainly is so. Oh, well, the thing, however, is, as you say, of the simplest. A young lady for you, sir. Hmm? She handed me this. Uh, Miss Mary Morstan, according to her card. Ask her to step in, Mrs. Hudson. Mr. Holmes will see you. Uh, Miss Morstan, I am Sherlock Holmes, and this is my colleague, Dr. Watson. Pray, sit down. Now, what brings you here? I have come to you, Mr. Holmes, at the request of my employer, Mrs. Cecil Forrester. Yes. I was of some small service to her once. She did not think it was so small a matter, but at least you cannot say the same of mine. I can hardly imagine anything more strange, more utterly inexplicable than the situation in which I find myself. Hmm. State your case. Briefly, the facts are these. My father was an officer in an Indian regiment who sent me home when I was quite a child. In the year 1878, my father obtained 12 months' leave and came home. I was to meet him in London. On reaching his hotel, the Langham, I was informed that Captain Morstan had gone out the night before and had not returned. I waited all day without news of him. That night, I communicated with the police, and next morning, we advertised in all the papers. Our inquiries led to no result. The date? Write this down, Watson. He disappeared upon the 3rd of December, 1878, nearly ten years ago. His luggage? Reclaimed at the hotel. There was nothing in it to suggest a clue. Some clothes, some books, and a considerable number of curiosities from the Andaman Islands. He had been one of the officers in charge of the convict guard there. Had he any friends in town? Only one that we know of, Major Sholto, of his own regiment, retired some time before. We communicated with him, of course, but he did not even know that his brother officer was in England. A singular case. I have not yet described to you the most singular part. About six years ago, to be exact, upon the 4th of May, 1882, an advertisement appeared in the Times 
asking for the address of Miss Mary Morstan. You answered this advertisement? Yes, on the advice of Mrs. Forrester. I published my address in the advertisement column. The same day there arrived through the post a small cardboard box addressed to me, which I found to contain a very large and lustrous pearl. Was there any explanation? Any word of writing? No. Since then, every year upon the same date, there has always appeared a box containing a similar pearl, without any clue as to the sender. They have been pronounced by an expert to be of a rare variety and of some considerable value. You can see for yourself that they are very handsome. My word, very... There are, as you can see, six pearls. Your statement is most interesting. Has anything else occurred to you? Yes, and that is why I've come to you. This morning I received this letter, which you will perhaps read for yourself. Thank you. Postmark London Southwest. Date July 7th. Best quality paper. Particular man in his stationery. No address. Here, Watson. Hmm. Uh, be at the third pillar from the left outside the Lyceum Theatre tonight at seven o'clock. If you are distrustful, bring two friends. You are a wronged woman and shall have justice. Do not bring police. If you do, all will be in vain. Your unknown friend. Well, really, this is a very pretty little mystery. What do you intend to do, Miss Marston? That is exactly what I want to ask you. Then we shall almost certainly go. You and I... <clears throat> and yes, why, Dr. Watson is the very man. Your correspondent says two friends. He and I have worked together before. You are both very kind. There is one other point, however. Is the handwriting the same as that upon the pearl box address? I have them here. Well, you certainly are a model client. Now let us see. A disguised hand, except the letter. But there can be no question as to the authorship. I should not like to suggest false hope, Miss Morstan, but is there any resemblance between this hand and that of your father? Nothing could be more unlike. I expected to hear you say so. We shall look for you then at six. Uh, pray, allow me to keep the papers. I may look into the matter before you return. Au revoir, then. Thank you so much. It's nearly time for us to meet our lady client. I must say, she's a very attractive woman. Is she? I did not observe. There's something positively inhuman in you at times. It is of the first importance not to allow your judgment to be biased by personal qualities. But in this case... There is no great mystery in this matter. The facts appear to admit of only one explanation. What? You've solved it already? Well, that would be too much to say. I have discovered a suggestive fact, that is all. I have just found, on consulting the back files of the Times, that Major Sholto of Upper Norwood, late of the 34th Bombay Infantry, died upon the 28th of April, 1882. And what does that suggest, then? Let's look at the facts. Captain Morstan disappears. The only person in London whom he could have visited is Major Sholto. Major Sholto denies having heard that he was in London. 
Four years later, Sholto dies. Within a week of his death, Captain Morstan's daughter receives a valuable present which is repeated from year to year and now culminates in a letter which describes her as a wronged woman. Hmm. Well, the deprivation of her father is the only wrong I can think of. Precisely. And why should the presence begin immediately after Sholto's death, unless Sholto's heir knows something of the mystery and desires to make compensation? But what a strange compensation. Why, too, should he write a letter now rather than six years ago? Oh, there are certainly difficulties. But our expedition of tonight will solve them all. Ah, here is a four-wheeler. And Miss Morstan is inside. I see you have taken your heaviest stick, Watson. Excellent. Before we go down to meet her... I think I might slip this revolver in my coat pocket. Major Sholto was a particular friend of Papa's. They were in command of the troops at the Andaman Islands, so they were thrown a great deal together. By the way, a curious paper was found in Papa's desk. I brought it with me. It is a paper of native Indian manufacture. The diagram upon it appears to be a plan of part of a large building with numerous halls, corridors, and passages. At one point is a small cross done in red ink. And above it is the inscription in faded pencil writing. In the upper left-hand corner, what is that? It's a rather curious hieroglyphic. Like four crosses in a line with their arms touching. Beside it is written, The Sign of the Four. Jonathan Small, Muhammad Singh, Abdullah Khan, Dost Akbar. No, I confess that I do not see how this bears upon the matter. Preserve it carefully, Miss Mawson, for it may prove to be of use to us. I begin to suspect that this matter may turn out to be much deeper and more subtle than I first supposed. Whoa. Ah, the Lyceum. Oh, there, if I am not mistaken, is our rendezvous point. We are precisely on time. Are you the parties who come with Mawson? I am Miss Mawson, and these two gentlemen are my friends. You excuse me, miss, but I was to ask to give me your word that neither of your companions is a police officer. I give you my word on that. Now, if you please step into the coach, miss. Ah, your servant, Miss Morstan. I am your humble servant. Your servant, gentlemen, pray step into my coach. I am Mr. Thaddeus Sholto. You are Miss Morstan, of course, and these... Gentlemen. Ah, uh, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, and this is Dr. Watson. Uh, the Sherlock Holmes! <laughs> a pleasure! Uh, and you? You are a, a doctor, you say? Have you your stethoscope? Uh, wh why, yes. Might I ask you? <laughs> would you have the kindness? I have grave doubts as to my mitral valve. You, you want me to listen to your heart? But I, I, I don't we see. We don't I... see any harm in indulging our host. Do we, Watson? Uh, well, I suppose not. Uh, deep breaths, please. Again. Once more. Uh, it appears to be normal. You have no cause for uneasiness. Thank you, Dr. Watson. To 
to Norwood, my brother's house. Very good, sir. You will excuse my anxiety, Miss Morstan. I am a great sufferer, and I have long had suspicions as to the valve. I am delighted to hear that they are unwarranted. Had your father, Miss Morstan, refrained from throwing a strain upon his heart, he might have been alive by now. Sir, how can you behave in such a callous manner to a lady? I knew in my heart he was dead. I do hope you aren't offended by the liberties that I took in getting you here. I can give you every information, and what is more, I can do you justice. And I will, too, whatever Brother Bartholomew may say. You will excuse me, Mr. Sholto, but I am here at your request to learn something which you desire to tell me. We are now on our way to Norwood to see Brother Bartholomew. Before we arrive, I must first lay the facts before you as I know them myself. My father was, as you may have guessed, Major John Sholto, once of the Indian Army. He retired some eleven years ago and came to live at Pondicherry Lodge in Upper Norwood. He had prospered in India and brought back with him a considerable sum of money, a large collection of valuable curiosities, and a staff of native servants. My twin brother Bartholomew and I were his only children. After the disappearance of Captain Morstan, we noticed that some positive danger overhung our father. He would never tell us what it was he feared, but he had a most marked aversion to men with wooden legs. Wooden legs? How remarkable. Early in 1882, my father received a letter from India, which was a great shock to him. He nearly fainted at the breakfast table when he opened it, and from that day he sickened to his death. Towards the end of April, we were informed that he was beyond all hope, and that he wished to make one last communication with us. The only thing which weighs upon my heart at this moment is the treatment of poor Morstan's orphan. My cursed greed has been my besetting sin through my life and has caused me to withhold half of the treasure that should have been hers. See that chaplet tipped with pearls beside the wine bottle? Yes, Father. You, my sons, will give her a fair share of the Agra treasure, but send her nothing, not even the chaplet, until I am gone. As you wish. Come closer. I will tell you how Morstan died. He had suffered for years from a weak heart, but he concealed it from everyone. I alone knew it. When in India, he and I, through a remarkable chain of circumstances, came into possession of a considerable treasure, I brought it over to England, and on the night of Morstan's arrival, he came straight over here to claim his share. He and I had a difference of opinion as to the division of the treasure, and we came to heated words. Morstan sprang out of his chair in a fit of anger, pressed his hand to the side, and fell over dead. Did you call for assistance? Of course, but I feared that I would be accused of murder, and the secret of the treasure would be revealed. My faithful servant helped me dispose of Morstan's body that night. I wish, therefore, to make restitution. 
Put your ear down to my mouth. The treasure is hidden in. <gasps> Keep him out! Keep him out! What was it that frightened him? At the window, we saw a face looking in at us out of the darkness. It was a bearded, hairy face with wild, cruel eyes and an expression of concentrated malevolence. Dear me, I would have rushed at the scoundrel. We did, but when we opened the window, he was gone. When we returned to my father, his head had dropped and his pulse had ceased to beat. The next morning we found the window open. His cupboards and boxes had been rifled, and upon his chest was fixed a torn piece of paper with the words, The Sign of the Four, scrawled across it. (gasps) The Sign of the Four! Are you feeling all right, Miss Morstan? Oh, yes. Pray, continue with your story. That is, if Miss Morstan is quite ready. Oh, please, go on. My brother and I were, as you may imagine, much excited as to the treasure which my father had spoken of. For weeks and months we dug and delved in every part of the garden without discovering its whereabouts. It was only yesterday I learned that the treasure had been discovered. I instantly communicated with Miss Morstan, and it only remains for us to drive out to Norwood and demand our share. We are expected, if not welcome, visitors. You have done well, sir, from first to last. Where was the treasure hidden? Bartholomew had come to the conclusion that it was somewhere indoors. Eventually, he found a garret which had been sealed up and was known to no one. He raised a lantern through the hole, and there it lies. He computes the value of the jewels at no less than half a million sterling. By Jove. I know. That's... That's wonderful news. You should want for nothing. We are here. This, Miss Morstan, is Pondicherry Lodge. Who's there? It is I, McMurdo. You surely know my knock by this time. That you, Mr. Darius? Well, who are the others? I know it is about them from the master. No? You surprise me. I told my brother last night that I should bring some friends. He had better have his rooms today, Mr. Darius, and I have no orders. I can let you in, but your friends must just stop where they are. If I guarantee them, McMurdo, that is good enough for you. There is a young lady, too. She cannot wait on a public road at this hour. Very sorry, Mr. Thaddeus, but I don't know none of your friends. Oh, I don't think you can have forgotten me, McMurdo. Don't you remember that amateur who fought three rounds with you at Allison's rooms on the night of your benefit four years back? Not Mr. Sherlock Holmes! God's truth, how could I have mistook you? (laughs) You see, Watson, if all else fails me, I still have one of the scientific professions open to me. (laughs) Our friend won't keep us out in the cold now, I'm sure. Oh, in you come, sir, in you come. You and your friends. 
Very sorry, Mr. Thaddeus, but my orders was very strict. Had to be certain before I let him in. I cannot understand it. I, I distinctly told Bartholomew that we should be here, and yet I saw no light at his window. It is Mrs. Burnstone, the housekeeper. She is the only woman in the house. Quickly, then. It came near the stairs. Mrs. Burnstone, what is the matter? Oh, Mr. Thaddeus, sir. I'm so glad you've come. Is there something amiss with Bartholomew? Oh, yes. Master has locked himself in and will not answer me. After an hour, I feared that something was wrong. So I went up and peeped through the keyhole. Oh, you must go up, Mr. Thaddeus. You must go up and look for yourself. I'll stay here with Mrs. Burnstone. Oh, bless after you, Mr. Sholto. This, this is it. The third door along. Mr. Sholto? Mr. Sholto? There is something devilish in this. Watson. Will you look through the keyhole? Of course. Uh, one moment. What do you see? A man. Your twin brother. His face is set in such an unnatural smile. This is terrible, Holmes. What is to be done? The door must come down. Mr. Sholto, step back. Ready, Watson? Together. On the count of three. One, two, three. <laughs> oh, we almost had it. Once more. Ready? One, two. Two, three. It, it looks like a chemical laboratory. Look up there. The ceiling has been torn away. There's a set of steps underneath and a rope. You'd better take a look at Mr. Sholto. Uh, not only his face, but his hands and arms are twisted and turned in a most unnatural fashion. Uh, clearly, he has been dead many hours. He is quite stiff and cold. What is that next to his hand? Uh... There's a torn note sheet. The sign of the four. For goodness sake, what does it all mean? It means murder, Watson. It means murder. You're listening to the Texas Radio Theater, and that was part one of The Sign of Four by Arthur Conan Doyle. It was recorded by the Texas Radio Theater Company in November and December of 2004. We'll start part two right after this. It is an original fragrance that scintillates the senses. A mask so powerful only a real man can wear it. It's gasoline. A new high-octane fragrance from Texaco. Hi, I'm Rob Gas Scent Soap with the latest Texaco product, gasoline. Not only is it a combustible fuel product, but now it's a new smell that really gets the ladies' attention. Hey, baby. Are you alone? Actually, I'm uh, waiting for a friend. I see. But... Say, what is that aftershave you're wearing? Oh, <laughs> it's gasoline. The new high-octane fragrance from Texaco. 
Why, it certainly is manly. Yes, thank you. Mmm, yes. Mind if I smoke? Uh, wait, I, I wouldn't like that match if I were to... Yes, that's gasoline, the new tough and manly fragrance from Texaco. Available in regular, unleaded, and fire chief for that clean, burning feeling. I.O. Silver. What is that next to his hand? Oh, there's a torn note sheet. The sign of the four... For goodness sake, what does it all mean? It means murder. Ah, as I expected. Look here, just above the ear. It looks like a long, dark thorn. It is a thorn. You may pick it out, but be careful, for I am certain it is poisoned. The treasure is gone! I was the last person who saw him! What time was that? It was ten o'clock, and now he is dead, and I shall be suspected of having a hand in it! You have no reason to fear, Mr. Sholto. Take my advice and drive down to the station to report the matter to the police. Offer to assist them in every way. We shall wait here until your return. If you think that is the best course of action... I do, Mr. Sholto. Very well, then. Now, Watson, we have half an hour to ourselves. Let us make good use of it. My case is almost complete, but we must not err on the side of overconfidence. Simple as the case seems now... There may be something deeper underlying it. Simple? Elementary, Watson. Now, to work. In the first place, how did these folk come, and how did they go? The door has not been opened since last night. Check the window. Uh, The window is fastened from the inner side. Hmm. The framework is solid. No hinges on the side. Let us open it. No water pipe near. Roof... Quite out of reach. Yet a man has mounted by the window. How do you know? It rained a little last night. Here is a footprint in the mould upon the sill. And here is a circular muddy mark. And here again on the floor. And here again by the table, along with a boot print. That round disc is not a footmark. It is something much more valuable to us. It is the impression of a wooden stump. The mark of the timber toe. It is the wooden-legged man. Quite so. But there has been someone else, a very able and efficient ally. Could you scale that wall, Doctor? Hmm. Uh, We are a good 60 feet from the ground, and I see no foothold. It is absolutely impossible. Without aid, it is so. But suppose you had a friend up here who lowered you this good stout rope, which I see in the corner, securing one end of it to this great hook in the wall. I think an active man might swarm up wooden leg and all. You would depart, of course, in the same fashion, and your ally would draw up the rope, untie the hook, shut the window, fasten it up on the inside, and get leave in the way that he originally came. That seems quite possible. A minor point is that our wooden-legged friend was not a professional sailor. And how can you... The rope, Watson. My lens discloses more than one blood mark, especially towards the end of the rope, from which I gather he slipped down with such velocity that it literally took off his hands. Well, this is all very well, but the thing becomes more unintelligible than ever. How about this mysterious ally? Yes, the ally. He lifts this case from the regions of the commonplace. I fancy that this ally breaks fresh ground in the annals of crime in this country. Well, how did he come into the room, then? 
The door is locked and the window is inaccessible. Or was it through the chimney? We know that he did not come through the door, the window, or the chimney, for the grate there is too small. Uh, he came through the hole in the roof. Very good, Watson. If you will hold the lamp, we shall now extend our researches to the secret room above, the room in which the treasure was found. Hand me the lamp, then you follow. Yeah. Uh, uh, quite ingenious, wouldn't you say? <coughs> quite thick with dust as well. <coughs> Over here, Watson. See this? Uh, the trap door. Yes. I can press it back, and here is the roof itself. Now, this is the way by which number one entered. What's this? Look at these footmarks. About half the size of a man's, yet perfectly formed. Holmes, a child has done this horrid thing. I, too, was staggered for the moment, but the thing is quite natural. Now, there is nothing more to be learned here. Let us go down. Uh, oh. What is your theory, then, as to those footmarks? My dear Watson, try a little analysis yourself. You know my methods. Apply them. I cannot conceive anything which will cover the facts. It will be clear enough to you soon. I think there is nothing else of importance here, but I will look. Let's see. Ha! <laughs> we are certainly in luck! Number one has had the misfortune to tread in the creosote. You can see the outline of the edge of his small foot here. What then? Why, we have him, that's all. I know a dog that would follow that scent to the world's end. Here are the accredited representatives of the law. Before they come, Watson, let us examine this poor fellow further. Of course. Why, the muscles are as hard as a board. Quite so. The contraction far exceeds the usual case of rigor mortis. And coupled with this distortion of the face, what conclusion would it suggest to your mind? Death from some powerful vegetable alkaloid. That was the idea which occurred to me the instant I saw the drawn muscles of the face. The thorn was the means for delivering the poison into the system. Observe where it struck him. Yes. If he were sitting properly in his chair, the wound would be turned towards the hole in the ceiling. Now, examine the thorn. Is that an English thorn? No, it certainly is not. With all those data, you should be able to draw some just inference. Give it some thought. Uh, here's a business. Here's a pretty business. But who are these? Why, the house seems to be as full as a rabbit warren. I think you must recollect me, Mr. Atherley Jones. <laughs> of course I do. It's Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the theorist. <laughs> but what is all this? Bad business. Bad business. Stern facts here. No room for theories. <laughs> How lucky that I happen to be out at Norwood on another case. Hmm. What do you think the man died of? Oh, this is hardly a case for me to theorize over. No? No. Still, <laughs> we can't deny that you hit the nail on the head sometimes. <laughs> Dear me. Door locked, I understand. Jewels worth half a million missing. How was the window? Fastened. But there are steps on the sill. Oh, well, if it was fastened, the steps could have nothing to do with the matter. That's common sense. <laughs> Man might have died in a fit. But then the jewels are missing. Ha! I have a theory. Just step outside, Sergeant, and you, Mr. Sholto. Your friend can remain. What do you think of this, Holmes? 
Shoulder was on his own confession with his brother last night. The brother died in a fit on which Shoulder walked off with the treasure. How's that? Ah. On which the dead man very considerately got up and locked the door on the inside. Hmm. There's a flaw there. Let us apply common sense to the matter. This Thaddeus Shoulder was with his brother. There was a quarrel. The brother is dead and the jewels are gone. No one saw the brother from the time Thaddeus left him. And Thaddeus is <laughs> evidently in a most disturbed state of mind. You are not quite in possession of the facts yet. The splinter of wood, which I have every reason to believe to be poisoned, was in the man's scalp where you still see the mark. This card, inscribed as you see it, was on the table, and beside it lay this rather curious stone-headed instrument. Now, how does that all fit in with your theory? Confirms it in every respect. Houses full of Indian curiosities. Thaddeus brought this up, and if this splinter is poisonous, Thaddeus may well have made murderous use of it as any other man. The card is some hocus-pocus. A blind is like as not. The only question is, how did he depart? Ah, of course! <laughs> Here is a hole in the roof. You see, facts are better than theories after all. <laughs> My view of the case is confirmed. There's a trapdoor connecting with the roof, and it is partly open. It was I who opened it. Oh. Indeed. Well, you did notice it then. Hmm. Well, whoever noticed it, it shows how our gentleman got away. Sergeant! Yes, sir. Ask Mr. Sholto to step this way. Mr. Sholto, it is my duty to inform you that anything which you may say will be used against you. I arrest you in the Queen's name as being concerned in the death of your brother. <laughs> there now, didn't I tell uh, don't you? Don't trouble yourself, Mr. Sholto. I think I can engage to clear you of the charge. <laughs> don't promise too much, Mr. Theorist. You may find it a harder matter than you think. Not only will I clear him, Mr. Jones, but I will make you a fine present of the name and description of one of the two people who were in this room last night. His name, I have every reason to believe, is Jonathan Small. You know this Jonathan Small, do you? I've never met him. But I can tell you that he is a poorly educated man, small, active, with his right leg off and wearing a wooden stump which is worn away upon the inner side. His left boot has a coarse square-toed sole with an iron band around the heel. He is a middle-aged man, much sunburned, and has been a convict. These... Few indications may be of some assistance to you, coupled with the fact that there is a good deal of skin missing from the palm of his hand. The other man... <laughs> the other man? What other man? ...is a rather curious person. I hope before very long to be able to introduce you to the pair of them. A word with you, Watson. This unexpected occurrence has caused us rather to lose sight of the original purpose of our journey. I have just been thinking so. It is not right that Miss Morstan should remain in this stricken house. You must escort her home. She lives with Mrs. Cecil Forrester in Lower Camberwell, so it is not very far. When you have dropped off, Miss Morstan, I wish you to go to number three Pynchon Lane, down near the water's edge at Lambeth. Sherman is the name. Tell him, with my compliments, that I want Toby at once. 
You will bring Toby back in the cab with you. A dog, I suppose? Yes. A queer mongrel with a most amazing power of scent. I would rather have Toby's help than that of the whole detective force of London. And I shall see what I can learn from Mrs. Burnstone and the Indian servant, who I'm told sleeps down in the next garret. Then I shall study the great Jones's methods and listen to his not-too-delicate sarcasms. The police had brought a cab with them, and in this I escorted Miss Morstan back to her home. She had been the picture of strength for Mrs. Burnstone, but now that she had time to ponder the events of the evening, she began to cry. My sympathies and love went out to her. Yet there were two thoughts which sealed the words of affection upon my lips. She was weak, shaken both in mind and nerve. He was to take her at a disadvantage to obtrude love upon her at such a time. Worse still, she was rich. If Holmes's researches were successful, she would be an heiress. Was it fair, was it honorable, that a half-paced surgeon should take advantage of an intimacy which chance had brought about? This aggregate treasure intervened between us like an impossible barrier. This is where I live. Thank you for everything, and please extend my thanks to Mr. Holmes. We are both pleased to be of help. It must be nearly two. The servants will have retired hours ago. Mrs. Forrester? I couldn't sleep. I was quite worried about you. Mrs. Forrester, this is Dr. John Watson, Mr. Sherlock Holmes' associate. Do come in, Dr. Watson. You must tell me all about your adventures this evening. Thank you. But I have an important errand to complete for Mr. Holmes. I promise I will call and report any progress which you might make. Then we mustn't keep you. Thank you so much for accompanying Mary home. Yes, thank you. It was my pleasure. Now, Mary, take your wrap off and sit by the fire. You must tell me all about your evening. Holmes, the sergeant said you were up here. I have Toby. Over here, Watson. Ah, good. (laughs) Hello, Toby. (laughs) There's a good dog, then. Athelney Jones has gone. We have had an immense display of energy since you left. What has he done? He has arrested not only friend Thaddeus, but the gatekeeper, the housekeeper, and the Indian servant. We have the place to ourselves, save for a sergeant upstairs and the one you met at the door. Leave Toby here and come up. Uh, uh. Holmes, you've taken your shoes off. I'm going to do a little climbing, Watson. Let's first dip my handkerchief in a bit of this creosote. There. And uh, please take my shoes and stockings with you. Now, do you observe anything noteworthy about these footmarks in the dust? They belong to a child or small woman. Apart from their size, is there nothing else? No. Then look here. This is a print of the right foot in the dust. Now, I make one with my naked foot beside it. What is the chief difference? Your toes are all cramped together. The other print has each toe distinctly divided. Quite so. That is the point. Bear that in mind. Now, run downstairs, loose the dog, and watch for me. Toby, good dog, come along. Is that you, 
Watson? Yes. This is the place. Confound the fellow. It's a most breakneck pace. I ought to be able to come down where he could climb up. The water pipe feels pretty firm. Here goes, anyhow. Ah, it was easy to follow him. Hand me my boots, will you, Watson? Thank you. Tiles were loosened the whole way along, and in his hurry he dropped this. Hmm. A small pouch woven out of coloured grasses. There seem to be another half-dozen spikes inside, like that which struck Bartholomew Shelto. They are hellish things. Look out that you don't prick yourself. I'm delighted to have them, for the chances are they are all that he has. Are you game for a six-mile trudge, Watson? Oh, certainly. Excellent. Well, here you are, doggy. <laughs> Good old Toby. Smell it? Toby, you smell the handkerchief. There's a good dog. Let's go! <laughs> Look at him run. Yes, let's go as quickly as we can while he can keep the scent. Here, just outside of the gate, the print of the wooden leg's hand. You see the slight smudge of blood upon the white plaster. Look. The footsteps go off in that direction. Oh. Oh. Holmes. Holmes, I must catch my breath. Come, Toby. Heal. Do not imagine that I depend for my success in this case upon the mere chance of one of these fellows having put his foot in the chemical... I have knowledge now which would enable me to trace them in many different ways. It has, however, prevented the case from becoming the pretty intellectual problem which it at one time promised to be. Oh, the thing seems to be deeper and more inexplicable to me. How, for example, could you describe with such confidence the wooden-legged man? Sure. My dear Watson, it was simplicity itself. Two officers who are in command of a convict guard learn an important secret as to buried treasure. A map is drawn for them by an Englishman named Jonathan Small. Jonathan S Small? One of the names on the chart Mary showed us. Yes. He had signed it on behalf of himself and his associates. The sign of the four, as he somewhat dramatically called it. So Major Sholto used the map to get the treasure and brought it to England. Leaving, we will suppose, some condition under which he received it unfulfilled. But why didn't Jonathan Small get the treasure himself? Well, the answer is obvious. He did not get the treasure because he and his associates were themselves convicts and could not get away. But this is mere speculation. It is more than that. It is the only hypothesis which covers the facts. Major Sholto remains at peace for some years, happy in the possession of his treasure. But the letter from India, the one that caused him great fright. Perhaps it was to say that the men whom he had wronged had been set free. Or escaped. Now that is much more likely, for he would have known what their term of imprisonment was. What does he do then? He hires guards to defend himself against a wooden-legged man, our Jonathan Small. Naturally. Once Small was in England, he kept a watch on the premises and possibly established communications with someone inside of the house. The butler Lal Rao, of whom Bernstone gives far from good character. Do you follow? Yes, yes, I do. Small could not find out, however, where the treasure was hid, for no one ever knew save the Major. 
Suddenly, Small learns that the Major is on his deathbed. In a frenzy, lest the secret of the treasure die with him, he runs the gauntlet of the guards, makes his way out to the dying man's window, and is only deterred from entering by the presence of his two sons. After which he enters the room that night and searches the private papers in hope of discovering some memorandum of the treasure. And finding nothing... He leaves a memento of his visit in the short inscription upon the card. Do you follow this? Very clearly. I suppose after the Major's death, Small continued to watch his sons try to find the treasure. For six years, yes. Then comes the discovery of the garret, and he is instantly informed of it. We again trace the presence of some confederate in the household. But even though he knew where the treasure was, Jonathan's wooden leg prevented him from reaching the lofty room of Bartholomew Sholto. So he takes with him a rather curious associate, who gets over this difficulty but dips his naked foot into the creosote, whence come Toby and a six-mile limp for a half-pay officer with a damaged tendo Achilles. Then it was the associate and not Jonathan who committed the crime. Quite so. And rather to Jonathan's disgust, to judge by the way he stamped about when he got into the room. He bore no grudge against Bartholomew Sholto. Jonathan Small then left his record, lowered the treasure box to the ground, and followed it himself. That was the train of events as far as I can decipher them. I can easily see how you knew of his wooden leg and his name. I agree that he must be a similar age to the Major. His height can be determined from his stride... But how can you guess that he has a beard and that, for goodness sake, his skin is sunburned? It must be after serving his time in such an oven as the Andamans. And we know he was bearded from Thaddeus Sholto's description of the man at the window. I don't know anything else. What about the associate? Ah, well, there is no great mystery in that. But you will know about it soon enough. Come on, Toby! <laughs> Here we are. We seem to be going in the direction of the river. Indeed. Here we are at Broad Street, which runs right down to the water's edge at a small wharf. Oh, we are out of luck. They have taken a boat here. Now let's take Toby around the various punts and skiffs and see what he finds. You're tuned to the Texas Radio Theater. Up next... The conclusion of Sherlock Holmes and the Sign of Four. That comes to you right after this. Guy Pastrami here for Craftmatic Foods. Let's visit the kitchen of Betty Olive Loaf, a typical person, like many of us, who enjoys a good sandwich. There she is, putting down two slices of bread. Spreading some mayonnaise, yeah, there's some lettuce, a tomato, and some cheese. And now she's put a few slices of ham on top. If you ask me, it looks like a perfect sandwich. But wait, there's something wrong. Golly, my ham slices are hanging over the edges of my sandwich. Why doesn't my deli man ever cut them right? Don't blame your deli man! Who are you? And how'd you get in here? I was walking past and saw your door open, but that's not important right now. No? What's important is you need flexibility and convenience in your bread. Anybody can sell you sliced bread, but we at Kraft Medic have perfected the adjustable bread. Adjustable bread? Sure. Just load up a roll of Kraft Medic adjustable bread into our handy dispenser. Pull the leading edge and cut. Cut. 
Now your bread is the perfect length for whatever you need. Footlong hot dogs. Not a problem. Banana and celery. No need to cut them. How about rainbow trout? With our family size package, you can make a sandwich out of anything under 12 feet long. Wow. It's the next best thing since... Yes, Betty. It sure is. Ask for Kraft Medic Adjustable Bread at your grocery store today. We will return to part three of Sherlock Holmes and the Sign of Four. We're out of luck. They've taken a boat here. Let's take Toby around the various punts and skiffs and see what he finds. Nothing here. What about this boat, Toby? No? Keep going. Good dog. What have we here? Uh, the sign reads, Mordecai Smith, boats to hire by the hour or day. Steam launch available to hire. The pile of coke upon the jetty confirms that boast. This looks bad. The fellows are sharper than I expected. They seem to have covered their tracks. Oi, you come back and be washed, Jack. Oh, dear little chap. What a rosy-cheeked young rascal. Now, Jack, is there anything you would like? I'd like to pet your dog. Easily done. Is there anything else you'd like? I'd like a shilling. Well, here you are, then. Catch! <laughs> a fine child, Mrs. Smith. Lord bless you, sir. He is that. And forward. He gets almost too much for me to manage, especially when my man is away days at a time. Away, is he? Oh, I am sorry for that, for I wanted to speak to Mr. Smith. He's been away since yesterday morning, sir. And truth to tell, I'm beginning to feel frightened about him. But if it was about a boat, sir, maybe I could serve as well. I wanted to hire his steam launch. Why, bless you, sir. It's in the steam launch that he's gone. That's what puzzles me. For what good is a steam launch without coals? He might have bought some at a wharf down the river. He might, sir. But it weren't his way. Besides, I don't like that wooden-legged man with his ugly face and outlandish talk. A wooden-legged man? Yes, sir. It was him that roused him up yesternight. And what's more, my man knew he was coming, for he'd steamed up the launch. I tell you straight, sir, I don't feel easy in my mind about it. But, my dear Mrs. Smith, how could you possibly tell that it was the wooden-legged man who came in the night? His voice, sir. I knew his voice, which is kind of thick and foggy. My old man woke up Jim, that's my eldest, and away they went without so much as a word to me. I could hear that wooden leg clacking on the stones. And was this wooden-legged man alone? I didn't hear no one else, that's for sure. I am sorry, Mrs. Smith, for I wanted a steam launch, and I have heard good reports of the... Uh, let me see, what is her name? The Aurora, sir. Ah, she's not that old green launch with the yellow line, very broad in the beam. No, indeed. She's as trim a little thing as any on the river. She's been fresh painted, black, with two red streaks. Many thanks. I'm going down the river... And if I should see anything of the Aurora, I shall let your husband know that you are uneasy. A black funnel, you say? Not quite, sir. Black with a white band. Of course. Good morning, Mrs. Smith. Uh, there is a hansom up the street, Watson. We shall take that. 
Our course now seems pretty clear. I shall probably call Athelney Jones at the last moment. What are we to do, then? Take this hansom, drive home, have some breakfast, and get some rest. It is quite on the card that we may be afoot again tonight. In the meantime, I shall return, Toby, then wire the Baker Street Division of the Detective Police Force. Good morning, Watson. Uh. Here it is. The energetic Jones and the ubiquitous reporter have fixed it up between them. Uh, uh, mysterious business at Upper Norwood. About 12 o'clock last night, Mr. Bartholomew's shelter of Pondicherry Lodge, Upper Norwood, was found dead in his room under circumstances which point to foul play. <laughs> the discovery was first made by Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, who had called at the house with Mr. Thaddeus Sholto, brother of the deceased. At least they spelled our names correctly. Hmm. Mr. Athelney Jones, the well-known member of the detective police force, was at the scene within half an hour of the first alarm. Got your message, sir, and brought my sharp. In future, they can report to you, Wiggins, and you to me. Of course, Mr. Holmes. I cannot have the house invaded in this way. Sorry, sir. I thought I was doing right. You said it was urgent. I did. It is just as well that you should all hear the instructions. I want to find the whereabouts of a steam launch called the Aurora. Owner, Mordecai Smith. The Aurora? Is she black with two red streaks? Yes, and she has a black funnel with a white band. She's down the river somewhere. Let me know the moment you have news. Is that all clear? Yes, Governor. The old scale of pay. And a guinea to the boy who finds the boat. Now, here is a day in advance. Now, off you go. If the launch is above water, they will find her. We cannot pick up the broken trail until we find either the Aurora or Mr. Mordecai Smith. Are you going to bed, Holmes? No. I am not tired. I'm going to smoke and think over this queer business to which my fair client has introduced us. Wooden-legged men are not so common. But this other man must, I think, be absolutely unique. That other man again. I have no wish to make a mystery of him to you, anyway. But you must have formed your own opinion. Consider. Diminutive footmarks, toes never fettered by boots, naked feet, great agility, small poison darts. What do you make of this? A savage. And those darts from a blowpipe would place him in South America? Let us look in the gazetteer at the Andaman Islands. It says here that the aborigines have an average height below four feet. They have large, misshapen heads, but their feet and hands are remarkably small. And they're cannibals. Nice, amiable people. How came Small to have so singular a companion? As we have determined that Small had come from the Andamans, it is not so very wonderful that this islander should be with him. No doubt we shall know all about it in time. Look here, Watson. You look regularly done. Lie down there on the sofa and see if I can put you to sleep.
sleep well, Watson? Oh, I heard you marching about in the night. I could not sleep. The infernal problem is consuming me. I know the men, the launch, everything, and yet I can get no news. The whole river has been searched on either side to no avail. If no news comes today, I shall start off myself tomorrow and go for the man rather than the boat. But surely, surely we will hear something. In the meantime, I shall set myself to a chemical experiment. Oh, I shall be out then. You will make your report to Miss Morstan? I think that I might. I did indeed speak with Mary Morstan and Mrs. Forrester to update them on the progress, or rather lack thereof, of the investigation. It was Miss Morstan's fondest hope that we could clear Mr. Thaddeus Sholto. I have no doubt that Holmes will clear his name, and in so doing, make Miss Morstan rich beyond her dreams. Then surely she will have no use for a half-pay officer with a bad leg. I returned home with sadness. The standard, Doctor, and your afternoon tea. Thank you, Mrs. Hudson. Ah, Holmes has been busy. I shouldn't have wondered that he was off on some nasty business, dressed as he was. He told me that he was going down to the river. Uh, by the way, Wiggins may come back with news. He's been instructed to come without his entourage. Uh, here. The paper says that upon the discovery of a fresh clue, the police have released both Mr. Thaddeus Sholto and Mrs. Burnstone, the housekeeper. I wonder what that clue may be. Ah. There's an advertisement in the agony column concerning the whereabouts of Mr. Mordecai Smith. I sense Holmes's hand in that. Pardon me, sir. Inspector Jones? Oh, well, thank you, Mrs. Hudson. Good day, sir. Mr. Sherlock Holmes is out, I understand. Yes, and I cannot be sure when he will be back. Perhaps you would care to wait. Uh, take that chair and try one of these cigars. Thank you. Don't mind if I do. On second thought, I'll save it for later. Ah. Well, you look hot, sir. A whiskey and soda? Well, I'm on duty, you know. No, no, of course. So make it half a glass. You uh, know my theory about this Norwood case. I remember that you expressed one. Well, I have been obligated to reconsider it. A tad more whiskey, if you please. Uh, oh, yes. A bit more. Thank you. As I was saying, Mr. Salter was able to provide an alibi which could not be shaken. This is a very dark case, and my professional credit is at stake. I should be very glad of a little assistance. We all need help sometimes. Your friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, is a wonderful man, sir. He is a man who is not to be beat. I think I will have a cigar after all, may I? But what about the... By all means... Ah, I must admit, Holmes is irregular in his methods and a little quick, perhaps, at jumping at theories, but on the whole, I think he would have made a most promising officer, and I don't care who knows it. I had a wire from him this morning. Take a look. Go to Baker Street at once. If I have not returned, wait for me. I am close on the track of the Shelter gang. You can come with us tonight if you want to be in at the finish. Well, this sounds well. He has evidently picked up the scent again. Uh, what is it, my man? Is Mr. Sherlock Holmes here? Uh, no, but I am acting for him. You can tell me any message you have for him. He was to himself. I was to tell it. But I tell you that I am acting for him. 
Was it about Mordecai Smith's boat? Yes. I knows well where it is. And I knows where the men here's after are. And I knows where the treasure is. I knows all about it. Then tell me. I cannot. It was to him I was to tell it. Well, you must wait for him. Oh, I ain't going to lose a day to no one. If Mr. Holmes ain't here, then Mr. Holmes must find it out for himself. Wait a bit, my friend. You have important information and you must not walk off. We shall keep you here whether you like it or not. Pretty sort of treatment is this. We shall recompense you for the loss of your time. Sit here on the sofa and you will not have long to wait. Excellent cigar, this. I think you might offer me a cigar, too. It, Holmes! But where is the old man? Right here. Wig, whiskers, eyebrows, and all. <laughs> I thought my disguise was pretty good, but I hardly expected it would stand the test. <laughs> you rogue! You would have made a fine actor, and a rare one. But I thought I knew that glint in your eyes. I've been working in that get-up all day. You received my wire? Yes. How has your case prospered? It has all come to nothing. I've had to release two of my prisoners, and there's no evidence against the other two. Then we shall give you two others in place of them. But you must put yourself under my orders. You're welcome to all the official credit, but you must act along the lines that I point out. Is that agreed? Entirely. If you will help me to solve this murder. Well then, we move tonight. Meet me at the Westminster Stairs with a fast police launch at seven o'clock. And bring two stout men in case of resistance. That is easily managed. When we secure the men and the treasure, I think that it would be a pleasure to my friend Watson to take the box round the young lady to whom half of it rightly belongs. Let her be the first to open it. Eh, Watson? It would be a pleasure indeed. And one other point. I should like to have a few of the details about this matter from the lips of Jonathan Small himself. Certainly. And here is the boat. Right on time. Where to? To the tower. Yeah. We ought to be able to catch anything on the river in this. And not too many launches to beat us, that's for sure. We shall have to catch the Aurora, and she has a name for being a clipper. I will tell you how the land lies, Watson. You recollect how annoyed I was at being balked by so small a thing? I do indeed. My boys had been all along the river, and there was no sign of the Aurora. Was she scuttled to hide the traces? I think not. We believe that Small has been in London for quite some time, keeping a watch over Pondicherry Lodge. He could hardly leave at a moment's notice due to his companion. Not without attracting attention to himself. Mrs. Smith told us that it was past three o'clock when they got on the boat. It would still be quite bright. Therefore, they did not go very far. The night of the murder, Small paid Smith to hold his tongue, reserved his launch for their final escape, and hurried to their lodgings with the treasure box. Then what are they waiting for? The right moment, when they suspect no one is watching. Under cover of darkness, they planned to make their way to some ship at Gravesend or the Downs, where no doubt they had already arranged for passage to America or the colonies. But the launch? They could not have taken that to the lodgings. Quite so. I reasoned that the launch must be no great way off. 
I put myself in Small's place and asked what he would have done. I could only think of one way of doing it. I might hand the launch over to some boat builder or repairer with directions to make some trifling change in her. Of course. The Aurora would be removed to this shed or yard and be effectively concealed. At the same time, you could have her at a few hours' notice. That seems simple enough. It is just these very simple things which are extremely liable to be overlooked. I eventually located the repairer and then got one of the boys and stationed him as a sentry over the launch. He is to stand at the water's edge and wave his handkerchief to us when they start. We will be lying in wait and should be able to take men, treasure and all. You've planned it all very neatly, I must say. Have you another one of those cigars? Perhaps after we get your man, Jones. Look, it is your boy. And he's waving a handkerchief. And there is the Aurora, going like the devil. Full speed ahead, engineer. By heaven, I shall never forgive myself if she proves to have the heels of us. She's very fast. I, I doubt we shall catch her. We must catch her. Keep it on, stokers. Make her do all she can. We must have them. Pilot on, pilot on. Get every pound of steam you can. I think we've gained a little. I'm sure of it. Now they're pulling away. Keep the steam on. There she is. I feel we may not be fast enough. I think we're gaining, Holmes. We're approaching Plumstead Marshes. Hold fast, Captain. Ahoy, Aurora. Look, they're small. He's heard us. And on the deck, alongside Small. Surely that's just a bundle of rags. Look again. There's a face. Look at those teeth. Fire if he raises a hand. Uh, come closer. You'll never get us. You'll die first. He's putting a blowpipe to his lips. No! Watch out, men! The boat's going into the marshland. I think he's going to jump! He's jumped, Hold your fire! Don't shoot! Hold your fire, men! Why, Holmes? First, I should like to question him. And second, if I'm not mistaken, he won't get very far. How can you be sure? Small has a wooden leg. And they've run aground in a marsh. I see your point, Mr. Holmes. Pull alongside. Hand me that rope, Watson. Let's bring him in. Tie their boat to ours. We'll pull it back. Look. On the deck of the Aurora. A large Indian chest. Help me move it to our deck. Uh, there's no key, but we'll open it soon enough. I see no sign of that creature. I fear he is no more. But look here. We were hardly quick enough with our pistols. One of his darts is lodged just behind where we had been standing. Jonathan Small, I am sorry that it has come to this. And so am I, sir. I give you my word on the book that I never raised a hand against Mr. Shelto. It was that little hellhound Donga who shot one of his cursed darts into him. I had no part in it, sir. How could you expect so small and weak a man as that little fellow to overpower Mr. Shelto and hold him while you were climbing the rope? <laughs> you seem to know as much about as if he was there, sir. I will make no secret of the business. The best defence that I can make is just a simple truth. Now, if it had been the old major, I would have swung for him with a light heart. But I had no quarrel whatsoever with the young Shelto. 
You are under the charge of Mr. Athelney Jones of Scotland Yard. And I must caution you that anything you say will be held in evidence. Nay. You've been very fair with me, and I'll be straight with you. While a servant and injure, I was fool enough to go swimming in the Ganges. Then it was a crocodile that took off your leg. Nipped it off as cleanly as a surgeon. I was five months in hospital, thinking I would be no more than a useless cripple. But when you recovered, you joined up with a regiment. Hey, the Third Bengal Fusiliers. They made me a convict guard at Agra Prison. One night, two of the men under me, Abdullah Khan and Dostakbar, talked me into sheltering Mohammed Singh. It was Singh who had his hands on a great treasure? Uh, he was transporting it for a Raja. In return for his protection, I would get a share of a treasure. Well, then how were you imprisoned? Another guard happened upon us, and the Sikhs killed him right before my eyes. We managed to hide the treasure before we was arrested for murder. I ended up at the Andaman Islands. It was there that I befriended Tonga. The small native with the poisoned darts. Aye. Morston and Shelter were guards, and they liked to play cards. Eventually they owed a pretty packet. I pulled the major and the captain aside one night and told them of the treasure. Since they had their liberty, they might be able to arrange to uh, retrieve it. In return, I offered them a fifth share. I gave them the map that the four of us had made. But they made off with the entire treasure for themselves. So they did. Eventually, Tonga helped me escape from the island. I made my way to London. And I dare say you know the rest. I delivered the box to Mary Marston's house. She and Mrs. Forrester met me at the door. I briefly told her the story of our chase down the river as they both stared at the Indian chest on the floor. When I spoke of the dart which had so nearly missed us, I feared that she would faint. I assured her that I was quite all right, and we then turned our full attention to the box. What a pretty box. This is Indian work, I suppose. Yes, it is Benares metalwork. And it's so heavy. The box alone must be of some value. Where's the key? Mm, small threw it into the Thames. I must borrow Mrs. Forrester's poker. Ah. Why, it's empty. The treasure is lost. Thank God. Why do you say that? Because you are within my reach again. Because I love you. That is why I say thank God. And I say thank God too. They will find the box empty. When we knew we were being followed, we tossed the Earl of the Treasure in the river. If we could not have it, then no one should. That puts it all in a neat little package, I must say. I thank you, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. And now it is late, and we must get Jonathan Small to prison. Oh, Watson, you're back. Just in time to see Small carted away. Good night to you both. It was interesting. Good night, Inspector Jones. How did Miss Morstan take finding the box empty? Oh, quite well, actually. Holmes, 
I fear that this may be the last investigation in which I shall have the chance of studying your methods. Really, now? <laughs> Miss Marston has done me the honor to accept me as a husband in prospective. So, you're to be married. I feared as much. I really cannot congratulate you. Uh, well, have you any reason to be dissatisfied with my choice? Not at all. She is one of the most charming young ladies I have ever met. And she may have been most useful in such work as we've been doing. But love is an emotional thing. I should never marry myself, lest I bias my judgment. <laughs> I trust that my judgment may survive the ordeal. Yes. By the way, Lal Rao was a confederate in Sholto's house. The small confessed all while you were out. So now Jones actually has the undivided honor of having caught one fish in his great hall. The division seems rather unfair. You have done all the work in this business. I get a wife out of it. Jones gets the credit. What remains for you? For me, there still remains a solution of 7%. You've been listening to The Sign of Four, adapted by Julie Barrett and produced by the Texas Radio Theater Company. Our executive producer is Shannon Froelich. Our production manager is Ken Rainey. Original music was composed by Lucien Desar. Live sound effects were created by Hina Patiar. And Angie Payne. This production was engineered and under the direction of Richard Froelich. At this time, we'd like to invite our cast to come back up to the microphone and introduce themselves to you. Allison Davies. Mrs. Hudson, Mrs. Forrester, and Mrs. Bernston. David Grant. Sherlock Holmes. Eric Knapp. Sholto, Toby, and Jones. Sean Matthews. The commercial announcer and Major Sholto. Spencer Prokop. Dr. Watson and Jonathan Small. And Lorna Woodford. Miss Mary Morstan, Mrs. Smith, and Wiggins. Special thanks go to our all-volunteer cast and crew, and especially to you for helping us keep this valuable form of entertainment alive. I'm your announcer, Ken Rainey, saying thank you for listening and have a very pleasant evening. Goodbye. <laughs> The Texas Radio Theater Company, in cooperation with the Arlington Museum of Art, performs modern audio plays in the Dallas and Fort Worth area. Be sure to check our website at www.texasradiotheater.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed listening. I'm Richard Froelich, and on behalf of our cast and crew, thanks for tuning in.